This is The Guardian. Today, a meeting outside a Moscow train station and a rare voice of dissent from inside Vladimir Putin's army. A few weeks ago, I got a call late on a Saturday afternoon from a guy who said that he wanted to meet and that he was ready to meet me somewhere near the Belaruskaya train station in the center of Moscow. Andrew Roth is The Guardian's Moscow correspondent. So I grabbed a cab to get over there as quickly as I could. We didn't have a specific place to meet, except that he said that he was going to be wearing all black and he would have a big black backpack. And I told him that I was going to be wearing what I had on, jeans and a a button-down shirt. We both stood there for about five minutes until I looked over and I saw the person that I was waiting for. He's a guy about my age, mid-30s, shortly cropped hair. He's pretty big, pretty strong-looking. His name is Pavel Filatyev, uh, and he was a former paratrooper with the Russian army, who at that moment was more or less on the run. And what he said before I got there was that he wanted to find a place near the train station with not too many people around so that he could tell his story. It was sort of a very nervous few minutes as we were walking toward this this cafe on the streets that I thought might be a good place to sit with him. It was getting pretty close to sunset. Pavel was very nervous about meeting a journalist for the first time, especially somebody who was from a Western publication. He was a person who until two weeks ago, was in the Russian army, was actively involved in the war in Ukraine. And at the same time for me, this was also a somewhat nerve-wracking story to be working on. You know, I got back to Russia in July. I was outside of the country for a little while. People are terrified to talk out about the war and very scared to go on record with a journalist about it. We found a cafe on the corner in the Moscow Financial District, and we get into this little corner table, and Pavel orders a beer, he gets out a pack of cigarettes, uh, and he starts to tell me his story. What Andrew was told over the next few hours would become front-page news in The Guardian and around the world. An extremely rare voice of dissent from inside Vladimir Putin's army. The highest-ranking Russian soldier so far to speak out against the war in Ukraine and reveal the truth of what it looks like from the other side, speaking in the last days before he vanished from Russia. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus... Pavel Filatyev, the Russian soldier who turned against Putin's war. Andrew, tell me about Pavel Filatyev. When did he join the army and what kind of career did he have in it until recently? So Pavel was born into a military family. His father was also in the armed forces. Um, And it was pretty clear from a young age that he was going to follow in his father's footsteps. 
So by the time that he was in his early 20s, he was already in a Russian paratrooper unit, and he fought in uh, the North Caucasus in the mid to late 2000s. This is a very bloody and quite dirty war. After that, Pavel actually left military service. He was a horse trainer for a very long time. Hmm. And it was only shortly before the war in Ukraine began again that he returned to his unit, a paratrooper unit. He's in his mid-30s at this point, so he's a little bit older. Right before the war started, he was stationed in Crimea and is in one of the first waves of Russian soldiers to go into Ukraine. So, Andrew, it sounds like this guy has served in some pretty bloody places. He's been part of the Russian army for over a decade. He isn't a pacifist or really even kind of an activist, is he? At the point when the war begins, not at all. Um, It's a person who is more or less loyal, a person who is carrying out uh, orders, and a person who probably sees the world uh, in a way that many Russian soldiers did at the beginning of the war. And what did Pavel tell you about when and how he entered Ukraine? He didn't really know anything when the war began. He described this kind of sense of concern and a sense that there was going to be a war as their unit was moved toward the front, as the training kind of changed, and as they heard some snippets of information about kind of what was being declared publicly. But when the war actually began, um, the thing that he described was a kind of informational vacuum. You know, when, when the war began, there was a very large barrage of rocket and artillery fire from the Russian side toward the Ukrainian side. And the first thing that he, he recalled saying after that was that he felt like they must have been going to war with NATO because the barrage was so large and it was such a big attack that it was difficult for him to imagine that this could just be a kind of small-scale conflict. Hmm. But at the same time, it was difficult for him to imagine the kind of war that was about to actually take place. He didn't understand if there was also an attack on Russia, if there was a war also going on in Donbass. In many ways, it sounded like Russian soldiers on the front didn't really have much of an idea of what was happening at all. I mean, that is incredible to be in that situation and have no idea who you're even going to war with, let alone what you're going to find when you cross the border. What did Pavel tell you about what he actually saw once he entered Ukraine? So Pavel's unit, which is the 56th Paratrooper Regiment, one of the big first things that they were involved in was the capture of a seaport in Kherson, which is a city in southern Ukraine. They were sent into Kherson after it had already been taken, and they were sent to secure the seaport in the city. Kherson, that was the first city that Russia took in the war. What did he tell you about what that operation looked like from the perspective of a Russian soldier? From Pavel's perspective, I mean, you could see it as complete chaos. It was everything from having a kind of rusty Kalashnikov that didn't really work given to him, poor bedding, no place to sleep, uh, and soldiers not taken care of, to these really kind of big problems of leadership. Being stuck in the mud and asking a fellow soldier, you know, which way are we supposed to go? And nobody has any idea what the hell is going on. Wow. He, this is a person in a kind of junior leadership role. 
you could say, in the unit. But to him, it was fairly clear that, that nobody really had a good idea of what they were supposed to be doing. So you could see all of these different problems that were playing out and kind of a sense of disgruntlement and a sense of anger uh, over the way that this war was being carried out from the Russian side. And how did that play out, that feeling of anger, of almost like abandonment by the government that had sent them into Ukraine? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think that uh, Pavel's case is a kind of standout case of of what can happen if soldiers start to feel disgruntled in Russia uh, and start to feel like they've been abandoned by the leadership of the country. And so he paints this scene of soldiers who are angry, hungry, tired, no real sense of what they're doing on the ground. What does that do to soldiers who are feeling that way? How does it make them behave, according to Pavel? I mean, the way that Pavel describes it is it basically turns them into savages. You know, one of the big, vivid descriptions that Pavel describes in in a book that he put out later is the way that the unit entered a Kherson in the seaport. He's with a paratrooper unit that, as he says, hasn't bathed in a month, has been poorly fed, poorly supplied. And the second that they get into the living quarters of the local seaport, they basically just go wild. They start looting everything. You know, when he was talking to me, he described it as the kind of sack of Rome by barbarians. They started stealing pretty much everything that they could lay their hands on. Computers, food. Wow. Uh, he said that he took a hat and some clothing, but he also talked about other people in the unit kind of stealing electronics. Soldiers from a professional unit like this, they're not supposed to do this. They're supposed to be self-sufficient. And the second that they begin looting like this, you know, it opens a kind of door to all kinds of crimes. And it just shows that the unit doesn't have any discipline, that it's breaking down. How did he look as he was telling you about this, about himself taking part in this looting and these sorts of crimes that we've seen from Russian soldiers in Ukraine? Yeah, I think he was quite pained while he was talking about it. And, you know, this is a kind of difficult moment. I also did ask Pavel about uh, any incidents that he might have been witness to or have been involved in, including rape, extrajudicial killings, or anything else uh, that might be classified as a war crime. What he did say was that he was involved in the capture of at least two Ukrainian civilians uh, who uh, the Russians believed were saboteurs, but we only know that they were civilians behind the lines. They were not members of the armed forces. Pavel said that they captured them, they restrained them, and uh, that they were handed over to other members of the Russian armed forces. Pavel said he can't say anything about really what happened to them after that because he doesn't know. Hmm. Okay. And we'll get to how he feels about the war and the Russian army's conduct now in a minute. But I want to understand all these things he's describing, the terrible conditions, the looting, the possible war crimes. How does this reality of what he's telling you contrast to the depiction of the fighting that Russians have been getting at home? It contrasts 100% with what Russians have been told about what's taking place in the war. If you turn on uh, Russian TV that actually mentions the special military operation, as it's called here, 
the Russian soldiers always look super professional. They're always extremely well-equipped. They're always carrying out a very professional mission with pinpoint strikes for a population that's happy to be welcoming them into Ukraine. The idea that uh, soldiers are being mistreated or that soldiers are ill-equipped, that they're hungry, starving, it goes 100% against the war. I think it's possible to say that it would be more disturbing for many Russians to find out that their own soldiers are being mistreated than to be challenged about the fact that this, this war is a mistake in the first place. It goes against a generation of propaganda about the Russian army. And for Pavel, was there a moment when he realised that he needed to speak out about these things that he was seeing and experiencing in Ukraine? Yeah, Pavel, I asked him that as well when we were speaking because I was interested about what finally convinced him to, to write this book, uh, to come out in public against the war. And he described this moment when after they left Kherson, the Russian army was trying to move toward Mykolaiv and they were pinned down outside of the city and it turned into basically an artillery war. You know, they couldn't move forward, but they were stuck in these trenches. And day after day, they were just being, you know, shelled pretty mercilessly. And he described just at one moment, he was sitting there in this trench and he just thought to himself, you know, like, Christ, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to do absolutely everything I can in order to stop this war. So it was an almost religious kind of conversion. That's a, a big moment for, for a soldier, someone who has pledged their loyalty to the country. Yeah, it's a pretty cardinal change for him. You know, he, he had dedicated a, a large portion of his life to the Russian army and the military. As he puts it, uh, a lot of the people that he was fighting with, he saw as, as comrades. It's not worth underestimating how much of a radical change that is in terms of, of, of what his focus was and what his plans were. And what about those fellow soldiers? Did he get a sense that others were feeling the same way, were as angry and as disillusioned as he was? I think that there was a sense among them that they were disillusioned and angry, uh, and that many of the soldiers kind of felt the same disappointment with the leadership that he did. Um, but of course, that disillusionment only went so far. So when I asked him if the other soldiers thought that he had done the right thing by coming out and going public with his opposition to the war, you know, he said that 20% of them think that I'm doing the right thing. Hmm. 30% would say that I, I might be going against them by breaking this kind of code of silence around all of us. And then there's 50% of them who, who just, you know, are completely kind of disgusted with what I've done. But as he said it, all of them have cut him off since then. At this point, it's, it's too dangerous to speak to him. Andrew, I just want to get a sense of, of how far Pavel's opposition actually goes. Like, was he angry at the way that Russian troops were equipped, the, the disorganized way in which they were sent into this war? Or was he angry at the fact that they've invaded another country, that they're destroying Ukraine and they're attacking Ukrainians? And in the time since you interviewed him, we've seen the extent of that with the discovery of even more mass graves in the recently liberated city of Izum. Of all of that, what exactly is he speaking out against? When he was in the war, he had this real anger over 
the conditions of the soldiers, the kind of betrayal, he would say, of, of uh, people who were sent to war, the Russian army. Um, but I think after he got out, he started to kind of broaden that dissent and anger about what was going on. When we were speaking, he was pretty unequivocal about the idea that the war was wrong. What he said to me was that uh, Russians aren't going to win this war because we know that the truth isn't behind us, that this is a bad war. It's not a just war. So I think that this kind of kernel of anger about uh, his unit's condition grew into something that has become more of a kind of opposition to the government in general. And how did he come to leave the, the front line? How did he go from fighting in Ukraine to sitting in a cafe with you? So Pavel was at the front lines until April when a shell burst near him and it basically shot some dirt into his eye. Hmm. And uh, over time, it basically developed into an infection. And they eventually decided that if, if he didn't get treatment, he was going to lose that eye. What? No. So it was at that point that he was sent from the front into a, a medical hospital. And it was quite an interesting moment because he said that, first of all, despite all of his anger about the war, he felt mixed feelings about kind of leaving other troops in his unit. And the second thing was the kind of discovery of how the war was being portrayed in Russia. What did he say? He didn't know that in Russia you weren't allowed to call the war a war. You know, that it had been called the right. special military operation. Uh, and that, uh, that there was kind of so much silence about the actual conditions of how the war was being fought, about how poorly the war was going uh, on some fronts uh, inside of Russia. And, you know, I think that those contradictions kind of graded on him as well while he was in hospital. Uh, After some time there, he kind of made it clear that he wasn't going to go back to the front. And so it had reached ahead very slowly where the unit kind of was pressuring him to go back. He was resisting that uh, basically on various pretenses and saying that I shouldn't be sent back to the front lines. But in the end, he had eventually, formally at the very least, deserted uh, from the unit, you know, by the time that we had met. Wow. And so while he was in hospital and afterwards, he had uh, sort of formulated and written uh, a memoir about his experience in the war uh, that he called Zov, uh, Z-O-V. Uh, it means kind of the call, the calling in Russian, but it also uses the three symbols, Z-O and V, that have become the kind of pro-war symbols. Uh, in Russia. Right. They're spray painted on the side of, of tanks and other military equipment, right? Exactly. And so he writes this, this memoir very quickly, you know, in 45 days, puts down all of his thoughts about what's happened, about what's wrong with the war. And in August, he finally you know, goes on to his contact page. It's like Facebook for Russians. And he hits upload and he hits post. And he puts this big kind of memoir online for everyone to read. Wow. It's just blistering, you know. I mean, it, it's pretty relentless in terms of methodically picking through the problems uh, that an ordinary soldier might find in the war. Filatov writes, Have you ever seen the paintings of the sack of Rome by the barbarians? This is the best way to describe what was going on around me. Everyone looked worn out and feral. And we all began to scour the buildings in search of food, water, a shower, and a place for the night. 
Some started grabbing computers and whatever valuable goods they could find. I was no exception. I found a hat and a smashed up truck on site and took it. My balaclava was too cold. I became disgusted with all the looting, despite my wild state. Some people were drinking champagne, he said. People were taking cigarettes. And then he describes when they get into the kitchen. And they say in the offices, there was a cafeteria with a kitchen and fridges. Like savages, we ate everything there. Oats, porridge, jam, honey, coffee. We didn't give a damn about anything. We'd already been pushed to the limit. That is just incredible. What was the, the impact of, of him releasing something like that online? On state media, there was no impact because it was immediately ignored by the Russian state and by, by anybody who was in favor of the war. But for people in independent media, uh, for those looking for more information about what was happening, you know, the, the impact was quite huge. And did he say how his, his family, his friends, his former comrades reacted to him suddenly becoming one of the highest profile critics of the war in Russia? At the point when I met him, almost everyone he knew was telling him to flee Russia. And so he talked about, you know, his mother um, and his other family members saying that he should probably leave the country at some point soon. That he was getting thousands of letters from people, you know, either he was looking at the YouTube comments from, from his interviews or people were writing him directly, uh, telling him to flee Russia, threatening him, uh, supporting him, kind of all kinds of emotions. And it had completely upturned his life. When I met him, he had been changing hotels every night for two weeks. Oh, my God. And the only thing that he could kind of tell me at that point was he just said, I don't know why I haven't been arrested yet. Mm. And in that moment, he was sitting opposite you, a journalist with, with The Guardian. I mean, he must have known that if he hadn't crossed a line up to that point, he was certainly crossing it by talking to you. Did he seem afraid? Did he seem like he understood the gravity of, of what he was doing? Yeah, he was extremely nervous uh, when we met, you know, and I think that not just from meeting me, but I think just the, the accumulated stress of these two weeks or maybe months, you know, since he'd since he'd been uh, in the war had kind of graded on him. Yeah. His fingers were shaking. Um, he was having trouble concentrating at the beginning when we were speaking. Uh, it just felt like um, a person who was kind of at the end of his rope. And at a certain point in the evening, we, we just moved to a park bench. And, uh, you know, around then he started kind of looking around him, uh, studying the people who were walking by, you know, noting that uh, there was a kind of street sweeper that come by two or three times. And I think we both caught ourselves kind of <laughs> wondering if this was the moment when he was going to be picked up for, you know, speaking with a foreign journalist, if we were both going to be picked up because uh, I think we were both just pretty stressed out about the situation, about the idea of sitting in downtown Moscow 
and having in this interview. We finally finished talking sometime toward midnight. And I remember that I, I caught a cab um, because I was going to start heading home. And he was heading off to a, another hostel. Uh, he didn't know where he was going to spend the night. Uh, and he said, I, you know, probably won't tell you. And uh, it's better if you don't know. Did you get any sense from him that he regretted anything that he had done up to that moment? He said not in the slightest. The, the way he described it was that writing the memoirs and publishing them, it kind of helped him to psychologically, I think, deal with the war. And that it took kind of going back through this, this process of writing out everything that had happened um, to kind of get to a point where he was even able to discuss it. You know, and that said, uh, he said he couldn't read it again because it felt like reliving it. And so, Andrew, once you were done talking to Pavel, what happened then? What did he do? So when Pavel and I finished speaking, I wasn't sure if I would see him again. And uh, the truth is that within days, Pavel apparently changed his mind and had decided to flee the country. Um, He went dark for a little bit. He and I had been writing uh, back and forth. And all of a sudden, my messages stopped getting to his phone. Hmm. Uh, And it was then that... Uh, an activist told me that uh, the reason for that was that Pavel was fleeing the country, uh, that he needed to be out of touch for a few days, and that eventually he would make it across the border and he would be able to get back in touch again. So two or three days later, Pavel reappeared outside of the country. Uh, He didn't say where. Basically, he was taking this kind of circuitous route uh, to Europe that a number of activists have taken before him. He arrived in Paris at uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport. And one of his first acts on arriving in the country was to uh, deliver a kind of anti-Putin speech on the internet. Ma carte d'identité militaire. And to rip up his Russian passport. Uh, which he had brought with him, and to uh, basically flush it down the toilet in the airport bathrooms and to request asylum in France. Coming up, how many others are there, like Pavel Filatyev in the Russian army? It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man... He's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated. He just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock, from The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kale, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Search for 
Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. All episodes will be available on Friday, the 23rd of September. Andrew, Pavel is the highest ranking Russian soldier to voice disillusionment with the war, but is he the only one? Like, do you get a sense yourself in Moscow of, of how widespread his views are and, and are becoming among Russians? I think it's difficult to say how many people agree with him because people are so scared to speak on the topic. Um, I do think that among even ordinary Russians, there's a growing sense that the war is not working the way that it was supposed to, that the war is failing. But the thing is that what people are actually willing to do about it is a very different question. You know, whatever views people have, they hold them pretty close. But what about the people who who have lost loved ones in Ukraine, for example? Like, do, do family members of soldiers who have died get to voice opposition? And, and do they actually do that? Sometimes they do. But to be honest, it's very difficult to predict how people react to the loss of a family member. And you also see them say the kind of opposite, that we want to honor the memory of, you know, the son who died or of the, the husband who died. Mm. Uh, and one way to do that is by, by recognizing that he was doing an important thing. You know, he was fighting for whatever it's called, freedom, um, order, <laughs> you know, all these different kind of explanations for what the army is doing there. In that context where there's so much fear and so much brainwashing about what's happening in Ukraine, do you personally think that Pavel's act, this incredibly brave dissent that he's voiced, was it worth it? And do you think in the long run it will be seen as something that was worth doing? There just aren't many Russian soldiers who have been willing to come out against the war, to speak out their dissent, to say it publicly, um, to go on record, to write out in pretty clear detail and close detail about exactly what went wrong with the war um, from the Russian side. It's possible that, you know, in the end, he's looking for some kind of absolution, um, that uh, this is eating at him. So to me, it makes, you know, it's important that we speak to people like Pavel, and that we write about their stories, you know, without offering any kind of, uh, you know, final verdicts, because in the end, it's not a court. Uh, we're not passing justice, but we are really kind of trying to look at the inner workings of what's going on. You know, taking a position uh, is really important. Taking a straightforward uh, vocal position, one that changes your life, you know, one that's going to mean that you can't come back anymore, um, is important. It matters. And in the book, he says that this is a vicious circle of some kind. We are all to blame, but we need to make the right conclusions and correct our mistakes. What is the breadth of the Russian soul? Where did our nobility and spirituality disappear? Our ancestors shed so much of their own blood for the sake of freedom. It may not change anything, but I refuse to take part in this madness. Ethically, it would be easier if Ukraine attacked us. But the truth is that we invaded Ukraine and the Ukrainians did not invite us. Andrew Roth, thanks so much. Thank you. 
That was Andrew Roth, The Guardian's Moscow correspondent. You can read his story about Pavel Filatiev at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producers are Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Thank you.